Good Physics Day, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Physics Alive, and my first solo episode in quite some time. I've had a lot of great interviews over the past, oh gosh, how long has it been? When's the last time I've done a solo, uh, a solo show? It looks like, actually, it was back in May when I did a review of some of the articles in the Physics Teacher Journal which is in fact what I have in mind today. But that has been since, uh, that was May, I believe, of last year. So it's been quite some time. I've had so many great interviews in between, uh, talked to so many wonderful folks, and I love doing the interviews, uh, but I've, I've wanted to get back to doing some of these solo episodes as well. So to start with today, I have a few thoughts and ideas I wanna share about Physics Alive as it moves forward and how I can, and how I can provide the right resources along with this podcast to help you move forward in your teaching to help you actually take some of the things that you learn from this podcast and move forward with them. And not all of them. I think I've said that before, that we can't be expected to act on every single topic that, that comes in front of us. But to be able to make some decisions about which ones to move forward with and how to move forward with those in maybe a more formalized way. And like I said, I'm also going to be digging into the physics teacher journal. And I'm going to look back at January, February, and March of this year and pull a few articles out of there. So the ones I'm looking at today are a column from Just Physics, Reflecting on a Difficult Year. I have an article about equitable group work and how that might improve student outcomes. And then I have a couple of articles that I'm going to look at that are looking at labs. So one of them will be lab activities on temperature and thermodynamics. And then looking at polarimetry measurements for food science. So all that and more, or at least all that, when we get started. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Over the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about Physics Alive, about what this podcast is meant to do, about what I can offer you as my listeners. And I think a lot of these reflections have really been stemming from, first of all, a couple of conversations that I've um, been having where I've been interviewed about the podcast, but then also my recent invitation to be the keynote speaker for the spring meeting of the Michigan section of the AAPT. And in starting to put together this keynote presentation, I've really been thinking about what is it that I'm trying to do with this podcast? How can I help educators move forward in changing the way that they teach? But not just adopting everything that comes their way, but to really think about what are the pieces that I really want to work on? And also thinking about finding the time to be able to do that and, and the motivation and all of those pieces and how can I best help my listeners? I'm putting this information out here. So I think the podcast on its own is fantastic. Well, I think so. Um, and if you're listening, hopefully that means you've really enjoyed it as well. But there's, there's more that I can do with it. And that's what I've really been beginning to think about. My recent episode, The Physics Rundown on Running, is an example of one that I've looked at and said, well, what were, what were my goals with that? And I feel like there were two goals. One of them was to be able to talk to my guest Wouter as an educator, to be able to think about how can we bring the topics of running 
and locomotion and biomechanics into an introductory physics classroom. What are, what are the types of labs that we can do? What are the types of activities we can look at? But another piece I was really interested in was what is the research that he's doing? He's doing this great research on uh, running shoes, on being able to help runners move, uh, to run a little bit faster, to complete races a little bit quicker. And there's so much great physics in just the running shoe and thinking about running economy and how can we help someone go a little bit faster. There were, I really had two audiences there. There was one, the audience of teachers, but then there was also the audience of people interested in learning more about the physics of running, which can be the teacher, but could also be just an individual who's interested in physics and could also be a student, a student who's interested in physics, but also a student who is maybe interested in doing a, a project for class on the physics of running. So maybe these two things shouldn't have been in the same episode. So I'm thinking about moving forward, maybe I start to uh, have sort of two separate conversations. Well, I do one interview, but maybe I split it into two and I say, all right, here's the piece that maybe the educators want to listen to. And then in a separate follow-up episode, or maybe that one's the follow-up episode, uh, we'll be actually talking about uh, the, the physics itself and an interesting application. So I'm brainstorming out loud. You probably didn't need to hear any of that, but there you go, you got it. Um, so you can start to see into the, the mind of, uh, of the creator here. And maybe I speak out loud about this because I'm interested in hearing some of your feedback. Would you be interested in seeing each of those types of episodes? Would you be more interested in one of them over another? Uh, do you have some ideas for, uh, for topics for that episode? Uh, a, a couple of, of ones that I have in mind coming up soon that I'm hoping to talk to people about are actually uh, the physics of making maple syrup and also the physics of rock climbing. So I haven't had either of those interviews, but I've been in touch with the folks I'm going to do those with. So that should be happening sometime. Anyway, keep an eye out for that. But another big picture aspect is that I realized I've had a number of different types of episodes. I've had kind of the big ideas in education episodes. So physics education research with Joe Reddish, when I talked to Nick Young about PER bytes, uh, talking with Carl Wyman, talking with Louis Delarier, then I've had some conversations about pedagogical framework. When I spoke with Rick Moog about Pogel, when I've spoken with both Jamie Visenka and Don Meredith about modeling instruction, about scale up. And then I've had some STEM themes and initiatives. So the FET project, biomimicry, coding, pop culture. And uh, another piece uh, where the running was an example of this, what I'm <laughs> uh, thinking of calling my physics alive lessons, my pals, eh, you know, acronyms it was when I spoke about the game sector vector, looking at trekking poles, running, and then what I can find in some of the AAPT articles, uh, sorry, the physics teacher articles or the American Journal of Physics. I mentioned rock climbing, maple syrup, uh, when I talked with Rhett Elaine about different um, pop culture pieces. Then some of the other parts I'm interested in are mental frameworks and healthy teaching. So I've done some solo episodes uh, early on about with meditation, about resolutions, about math shame. And then, of course, the, uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, where I've spoken with the Step Up group, the under-representation curriculum, where I spoke with Karen Catlin, uh, who wrote Better Allies. Um, so all of these different topics are important, and they all offer different entry places into the classroom and what we're doing. And we can't do all of them. We shouldn't do all of them. But which are the ones that we would like to pick up? Which are sort of the bigger changes, and which are little things that we can bring in? And I'd like to develop a formal way of doing that. How could you 
use an episode and its associated resources to make changes to your class. And what would those resources look like? So it can start by listening to a podcast episode and learning about something new that you weren't, that you were less familiar with, but then where do you go from there? Are there some notes that you could take? Is there a space, a place to take these notes? Are there other resources you could go to? Could you formalize yourself uh, reviewing those resources? Could there be a method of uh, brainstorming ideas? And then trying things, trying a low stakes incremental change, reflecting on those steps, and then taking the next steps. So what would a formal way to do that look like? And sort of off the top of my head, as an educator, I think worksheets. It's like, what, what could I provide um, on, on the show notes page? Some sort of worksheet, some sort of way that it could help you, it could help you organize your way to approach that. That could help me. I'm gonna, I need to think about how could I use a particular episode to make some motion forward. And maybe as I see what works for me and see what works for other people, I could start to develop those resources. At this point, I can already see my ideas taking the form of a grant. So maybe that becomes the, the next step. So if, if anybody listening has a sense of the types of grants that maybe I might apply to that would be interested in funding this type of idea, please let, let me know because a grant could go a long way in helping to support this show. Another endeavor I wanna try is having a Physics Alive Slack page. So I have to say, in the last few months, I've found myself using Slack more and more. I saw that one of my favorite podcasts, the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, they have a Slack page. And after interviewing the underrepresentation curriculum, I learned that they had a Slack page as well, which I've joined. And there's so many great resources and conversations happening there. And I thought maybe this is a way that I could help support a small community around the Physics Alive podcast to help encourage conversation around episodes and about ideas that come forth. So I've created a Slack workspace. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And if you are interested in joining that, you can hop on in and see what's going on there. It's just started. Uh, most of the channels are gonna be empty, but I pro uh, I've provided some uh, a general channel where we could have general conversations and introductions channel where you can introduce yourself and we can see who else has been listening. Uh, but then I have an episodes idea channel so you can share ideas that you have. Uh, a channel for other podcasts, you can share other things that you've been listening to. Is there a great episode that you found interesting in some other podcast that you like and you would like to share there? And of course, I think actually that could be any social media, but being that I'm interested in podcasts, I think that's one great place to start. And then the last channel I've provided is a professional development channel. So this is to be able to share ideas about some of the topics that have come up in the episode and about different opportunities for professional development, things that I learn about or maybe things that you learn about that you would like to share with the community. Okay, so there we go. I have a Slack channel now. Please, if you feel so inspired to join, if you use Slack already or if you're curious to see what Slack is all about, hop on over and we'll keep the conversation going there. But now I think it's time finally that we get into the physics teacher journal articles that I have in mind for today. And first up is the Just Physics column from the February 2022 issue of the physics teacher. And this one's titled Reflecting on a Difficult Year. There are two little articles. One is by Deepak Iyer and he calls it What Just Happened? He's heard that veteran educators have noted that this has been perhaps the worst year in many decades of teaching. But 
Nevertheless, instead of looking at the entire picture, many are quick to fault remote learning and lowered standards because of supposed leniency in the face of a global pandemic. But he notes that students have been showing remarkable resilience, but they're at the breaking point now. Severe illness and death in families, isolation, fear and confusion are widespread, and assigning blame doesn't help us understand the problem better or find a solution. So he considers three separate little subheadings, uh, one of them being decision-making. And he discusses that universities and colleges make decisions largely via upper administration and board of trustees. And these individuals generally do not teach and, and many are not educators themselves. They're making decisions that are ranging from reckless to poorly conceived ones being dished out by these administrators whose priorities have not aligned with learning, safety, and well-being. Uh, a second topic he looks at is community. It is safe to say that university workers do far more than they are fairly compensated for. for. And we slowly, as we slowly transition to more active and engaging forms of teaching and pedagogy and more meaningful forms of assessment, we find that this often increases workload in a way that is not offset by additional resources and compensation. It is often not even valued for promotion and retention. Nevertheless, many of us, especially those of us who wish to drive change, exploit ourselves in the process. That statement really hit me as something that I care so much about pushing education forward and, and to try out my new ideas. But I realized like this is all coming at often at my own expense. And, you know, is this being rewarded? I don't know. So in order to find the time, energy and resources, we need not just to have a voice in decision making, we the educators, but be the decision makers to decide how and where money flows, what gets prioritized and who gets prioritized. So topics have been decision making, community and then values has been the last one. Uh, values underpin our pedagogies. Do we push grit and resilience over compassion and support? Do we fault ourselves or our students for the failures of those with power? Do we value rigor over learning? Do our values truly support the needs of minoritized, disabled, non-normative students? Or do we revert to long-held discriminatory notions when it matters? So he's asking us to consider what are, have our values been? What is the system that we've been brought, in, brought up in as educators? And, and where are the changes that we have to make? The pandemic has laid bare inequities that were cloaked with the right sounding words and multi-million dollar PR campaigns. How do we hold others and ourselves accountable, accountable to our stated values? The second part of this piece entitled Reflecting on a Difficult Year was written by Shannon Wachowski. And she described the power of professional communities. And she has two stories here. One story is as a teacher in a small rural high school, one of my main challenges was finding colleagues with whom to collaborate. I desired not only a place to share and receive resources, but also a safe space to share challenges for my classroom. You can probably hear me shuffling through my papers. Eventually, I found Streamline to Mastery, a National Science Foundation funded professional development program for master teachers. We met twice a month to investigate the problems of practice within our classrooms and lives as educators. And she goes on to describe some of uh, the experience of being with this group. Uh, but then she describes how she left the classroom and was again looking for ways to connect with colleagues. She says, I had taken a position with the Department of Education as the science consultant and was again the only one in my space doing that work. Through participation in nat national organizations, I was able to find a group of women interested in forming the same connections and network. So she describes how they formed their own learning community and named it the Interstate Science Collaborative, the, IS the ISC. So since it's uh, Inception, the ISC has hosted two book studies and a summer learning series, all virtual and free for the teachers that they serve. 
She says, we've focused not only on sharing information through a book study, but also on creating space and time within the sessions for participants to discuss in small groups, action plan next steps, and reflect through the process. She concludes her piece by, by recognizing that there's been so many challenges for, for us educators, uh, especially these past couple of years. We've always had the challenges of being educators, but they've really been exacerbated the last couple of years. And she says, despite all these challenges, teachers are still showing up to support one another and their students. We have to continue to lift each other up as we move forward. One way to do this is to find or build our own learning communities. This might be present in your building or district, or maybe you have to look virtually to connect with others. And then she suggests some elements to consider in whatever format that you're able to find for this community. And these can include shared norms and values, experimenting with alternative strategies, collective focus on student learning, I mean, collaboration, deprivatized practice, reflective dialogue, and taking an inquiry, an inquiry stance. So I thought this was a really great reflective piece about the, the value of, of communities. And I have to say for myself, I have not done a great job of finding myself a, a community, a community of practice, uh, a community of, of folks who are in a similar position as, as mine. And maybe I'm, I'm hoping that the, this Physics Alive space, this podcast, possibly this Slack group and what can come from this could possibly be that community for myself and for others who are interested in that community. I know the AAPT also has their new communities workspace that they have provided, so that is an opportunity. But the Just Physics community is also saying that they are going to have something. So in the near future, we hope to establish ways to achieve such connections and help build the community of practice that we wish to become a part of. So let's look forward to what they may have to offer. So that was reflecting on a difficult year from the Just Physics column of the physics teacher. So the second article I'd like to look at today is from the March issue of the physics teacher. It's titled, Share It, Don't Split It. Can Equitable Group Work Improve Student Outcomes? And this article is by Danny Doucette and Chandralika Singh. And I'm gonna read the, the intro because I think it's a really nice intro that, that sets the stage here. Imagine two groups of students in your physics class or lab. In group A, the students each take on a different task, but invest an equal amount of time, energy, and effort in what they do. For example, one student might be the note taker, while another operates the calculator, computer, or experimental apparatus, and a third keeps everyone on track. In group B, on the other hand, the students divide up the work equitably, making sure that each group member participates in every aspect of the various types of work that need to be done. In this case, each student takes a turn operating the apparatus, records their own data, and does some of the analysis. Surveys, survey results that we analyze show that students prefer to work in group A, but that their physics interest and self-efficacy are boosted most by group B style work. So what the authors found in this study in particular is that group B style work is especially beneficial for women, a group that has historically been marginalized in physics. Thus, improving the equity of group work may be a productive step in efforts to improve equity in our field. In this context, we view equitable learning as providing equitable access to physics classes, inclusive learning environments that meet the needs of all students equitably, and learning outcomes that are not biased toward or against any group of students. So getting into the meat of it, Students prefer a fair split. In a survey, they asked 120 students in an intro college physics lab course to describe the characteristics of an ideal lab partner. The most common responses described a fair split of lab tasks. 
or a desire for the lab partner to do their share of the assigned work. These responses aligned with the group A style of work, not the group B style. None of these fair split responses indicated a desire to learn about all of the different aspects of the lab. Rather, they were based on notions of fairness and the goal of completing the lab work efficiently. So that's the first half. Students prefer a fair split, but they benefit most from sharing work equitably. The authors hypothesized that group B students would have more opportunities to learn and practice a wide variety of physics skills. With this extra practice, these students might become more interested in physics as a field of study. Group B students might also see an increase in their belief in their ability to succeed when doing physics work, which is an attitude called self-efficacy. So to test this hypothesis that Group B collaboration led to improved physics interest and self-efficacy, they conducted a survey of 792 students. And the paper goes a little bit more into the survey and some of those results. But one of the ones I wanted to point out, one of the results, is that they found that students who indicated they participated equally in all aspects of lab, the Group B students, were indeed more likely to report that interacting with peers increased their physics interest. So they noted a few ways that students engaging in Group B style collaboration could develop this higher level of interest. In one case, a student who acted as a note taker in other, in other labs was fascinated to finally see aspects of physics theory come to life when she assembled her own circuits for the first time. So that's just one example. The paper gives a few other examples. The results for self-efficacy were a bit more complex for women, but not for men. Students who indicated equal participation in the lab were also more likely to report that peer interactions increase their physics self-efficacy. So this was an important piece to find. They conclude this section by pointing out that research has demonstrated that students' interactions with peers, instructors, and the masculine culture of physics produce an uneven playing field that unfairly reduces the self-efficacy of women. And they conclude that in order to ensure that all students have equal opportunity, we should seek to design learning experiences that allow peer interactions to boost students' self-efficacy. So what are the implications for instruction? As one small part of efforts to improve equity in physics, it might be valuable for educators to set up group work in labs and classes so that students engage in group B style collaboration. And they offer a couple of examples of how you might go about doing that. And I'll just summarize these here, and uh, you can read the paper to get a little more depth in each, each of these. So they say you could consider developing collaborative work that is group-worthy. The second one is one of the barriers to equitable task sharing may be that students come in with different levels of proficiency for different tasks. For a particular lab, then, we might start by having students build the first circuit individually, maybe asking them to do their own piece first so that everybody does get a chance to practice something. A third one is providing structure to the tasks themselves can also help ensure students collaborate equitably. For example, you might assign roles to group members and have students rotate through the roles frequently. A fourth one is be mindful of the groups that you assemble. It can be wise to avoid placing students from historically underrepresented groups in a group in which they are the only underrepresented student. A fifth one is implementing an intervention designed to boost students' sense of belonging and intelligence mindset. So to wrap up this article, I would like to read the conclusion as well. In our introductory college physics labs, students prefer group work with a friendly lab partner who is willing to do half of the work. However, our research suggests that splitting up the work is not good enough. Students benefit most from peer interactions when they participate equally in all aspects of the lab work, with some additional benefits for women. Therefore, as a step toward improving equity in physics, we encourage instructors to design physics learning environments that support students sharing all elements of their group work equitably. 
This article really resonated with me and it makes a lot of sense. It really strikes to what I've seen in the lab myself. For instance, I know I've seen that, you know, say you have a, a, a group of three lab students. They often sit in the same order at the table. And sometimes the computer is at one end of the table and maybe the equipment is at that end of the table too. And I've seen that, you know, depending on where they sit is the role that they take on for the entirety of a given lab. And I know that, you know, somebody at the one end of the table that isn't next to the computer or next to the equipment is likely not going to be participating to the same level as everybody else. And often, so often I would see that's the person who's not doing as well in the class. And I, I have taken efforts to mix the students up and say, here, you know, that person at the end switched to be in the middle, but, or to, to be closer to the computer, but I haven't done that consistently. It's really a piece that I could see just building into, let's say you have lab, lab handouts that you give to the students, building that right into the lab handout, saying that, okay, here's part one of the experiment, and you can do that from wherever you're sitting, but then in part two of the experiment, you need to shuffle up. You need to change who's in front of the equipment. So it could actually be written into the lab. You could even do something where your lab TA or your instructor has to come over and sign, put their initials to show that you have actually switched. You know, maybe that's only early in the semester as students get used to this idea of needing to, to switch up uh, in order to, to be more equitable in getting everybody in front of the equipment to, um, to work with it. Another piece I could see enacting is to have everybody do the computer analysis. If there is some kind of graphical element, if you have to take the data and graph it, do some sort of linearization, do some kind of curve fit, to have everybody do that. So often, everybody has their own laptop or they have their own iPad, or even if they don't have their own equipment they can bring with them, there's at least one computer at the table anyway. So asking everybody to do it, make sure that everybody can do it. Because um, again, I, I often see that the student who sits at the computer and does the graph is the one who is most capable at doing that if they're asked to do a follow-up on an exam or on a, a, a lab homework assignment. So to get everybody sitting in front of that data to do that, I think that could also be a key to making sure everybody learns equally. So this could actually really be a simple little change. And this, so this is one of these articles that for me is a, it's sort of a, a last final aha. It's like, yes, I need to do something about this. I've seen this before. Maybe I haven't acted as well as I should, but now, now that I've seen something written about it, I've gotten some ideas from that. This seems like actually pretty easy to just start shuffling students up to really get them working in an equitable way. So, so I like this article. I think, I think there is some steps that I can see myself moving forward with. Okay, on to articles three and four, and both of these are going to be laboratory-based. Although I guess kind of the previous one was, was laboratory-based as well. This article is called Lab Activities on Temperature and Thermodynamics by James Lincoln, who is a frequent contributor to The Physics Teacher. And this was one that appeared in the January issue of The Physics Teacher. Starts off by saying, in this article, I introduce three lab activities appropriate for a high school physics course that are related to temperature and thermodynamics. So let's do a quick review of what these three experiments are. The first is a thermometer best fit line. So to perform this lab, students are given a thermometer that is calibrated both in Fahrenheit and Celsius, and they are advised of several important temperatures to check. Human body temperature, room temperature, water freezing, water boiling. So they can check these temperatures and get values for them both in Celsius and Fahrenheit, and then they graph them. Students are instructed to make a Celsius X and Fahrenheit Y graph. And with this, they can draw a trend line and equation in slope 
intercept form y equals mx plus b, getting the familiar Fahrenheit temperature equals 1.8 Celsius plus 32. This is super straightforward and actually reminds me a lot of some of the modeling instruction labs that I've done, particularly some of the ones you might do at the beginning of the semester where, for instance, you could look at the circumference of a circle versus the diameter or radius of the circle and you get uh, a simple plot that can tell you, the slope can tell you something about uh, the letter pi, the letter, the number pi. And it could be, this could be a great type of experiment to begin the semester with. Uh, for instance, if you want to get across some of the ideas of y equals mx plus b graphs. Another one this reminded me of, uh, another modeling instruction lab that I've done, is graphing the gravitational force versus the mass of an object. So this was always a simple one where you just take a bunch of different masses and find them in kilograms and then hang them on a force sensor and you can get the weight of those and you get a simple expression where the slope is g, gravity, uh, the gravitational acceleration. So again, this, this lab seems sort of akin to that. Okay, a second lab uh, is the melting point of coconut oil. This lab serves as a good way to introduce phase changes, the idea of melting points being specific to a substance, and a good way to engage with learning to use thermometers. And he got the idea for this lab uh, when he noticed that on warm days, the coconut oil on grocery store shelves was either, either partially or completely melted in its jars. In this lab, students are provided icy water and hot water, and the students can mix hot and cold as they search for the point at which the coconut oil changes phase. Speaking of phase changes, so uh, I quickly read another article by James Lincoln from the uh, March issue of The Physics Teacher about how hand boilers don't work. And uh, I'm not gonna talk about that one here, but I encourage you to go check that out. I definitely had I've definitely been using the wrong explanation in physics class. I definitely leaned towards the Charles Law description of how the hand boiler worked and not the phase change description. So that's another one for you to check out. The third experiment he discusses is how many calories are in a heat pack? So reusable heat packs work by releasing the heat of an exothermic physical change. So in this experiment, students are going to take a look at a heat pack and see how the temperature of the water the heat pack is resting in changes. So from these data, you can determine the calories absorbed using calories equals mass times delta T. In the case of heat packs, students can probably design their own investigations because they are so safe. Typically, one could fill an insulating container such as a styrofoam box or a soup cup with some amount of water, then submerge the heat pack and click the button. The water will begin to warm up and then using that same formula and a typical 12 degrees Celsius increase, you can find that about 1800 calories moved from the heat pack into the water. At the end of the article, he suggests a couple of follow-up experiments that one could do with this as well. So that's it. Three quick experiments in temperature and thermodynamics that one could introduce into the classroom. So last up is an article from February. Polarimetry measurement in a physics lab for food science undergraduate students by Ivan Sescon and Alberto Stefanel. This paper presents a series of experiments that focus on light polarization and polarimetry. My picking of this paper is uh, selfish on two ends. Uh, one of them is my interest in physics for the life sciences and seeing this interesting application of optical studies to food science piqued my curiosity, um, but also the, the optics piece. Uh, I love optics experiments and I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how, what are some newer applications we can think of for that. So let's dive into the nuts and bolts of this, which I'll have to say there is some um, new physics chemistry in here that I'm very unfamiliar with. 
So the teaching and learning of physics in the agrobio food area requires the active involvement of students in tackling problems intertwining physics and biology. Students can explore phenomena at the border of the two disciplines. As for instance, the experimental exploration of polarization and polarimetry, commonly used for the analysis of foods and sugary solutions. So the authors designed a set of experiments based on polarization, both Malice's law and transmissivity, and polarimetry, Bio and Druid laws, which I have to say, I did not know what those laws were. These experiments use homemade polarimeters and sensors interface with a computer in order to be offered to undergraduate students of food science in an inquiry-based physics lab. After the introduction, the paper starts with some of the basic physics and chemistry that you need to know for this lab. The phenomenological reference for light polarization is Malice's law, the law of the intensity as a function of angle equals the initial intensity times the cosine squared of the angle. And then they have a few follow-up expressions for that uh, based on uh, using real Polaroid filters, uh, which have extra transmission uh, coefficients related to those. The phenomenological reference of polarimetry for optically active solutions of length L and concentration C is known as the BO law. And they give this law, and it's a new one that I hadn't seen, where there's this alpha term, which is the rotary power of the solution referred to, and it refers to the temperature and the wavelength of the light used, and also refers to the rotation angle of the polarization plane when passing through the solution. So a lot of bits and pieces there that I'm a bit less familiar with, but I think could be a, a very interesting study. The authors outline a set of five experiments to go along with this. The experiments on Malice's law, transmissivity, Bio law, and the measurement of this alpha term of three beverages are described. So experiment one is looking specifically at Malice's law, uh, measuring the intensity of the light transmitted between two polaroids as a function of the angle and gaining some knowledge on that. And actually they, they used a couple of different light sources, a, a green laser, a red laser, and unpolarized light. And they were able to see some different relationships for each of those. In the second experiment, they obtained this factor T uh, when they performed a measurement of intensity versus N, where N is the number of filters. So now they were looking at the real physics of Polaroid, of Polaroid filters. The third experiment, now they're beginning to get into this measurement of this term alpha, which, let me see again, is the rotary power of the solution. So we'd have to, I guess, learn a little bit more about what rotary power in a solution means and how that is valuable. So that would piece, be a piece that I would want to dig into a little bit. Uh, but the experiments, there are now three experiments that are looking at that. One of them is looking at how this uh, rotary power uh, changes with concentration. So they were able to change the concentration of different sucrose solutions in distilled water and could determine the rotary power by, by a regression line. And interestingly, the sign of the slope changes when you change between using sugar and fructose. So this seems in physics like a very big change. You have a positive slope versus a negative slope. So that, that's an interesting study there. Conventionally, this sign is positive for a compound as sugar that gives a clockwise rotation called dextro-rotatory and negative if the compound shows a counterclockwise rotation such as fructose called levorotatory. The fourth experiment now also measuring this alpha term, measurement of alpha versus the length. So they're able to change the depth of the solution that they're, they're taking a look at, and they can see how this term changes uh, with that depth. And again, we're able to start seeing positive and negative slopes 
uh, for this change in depth versus sugar and fructose. And the fifth and final experiment is measuring the rotatory power of beverages, such as tonic water, cola, and apple juice. So now that they've, uh, now the students have done some explorations of just some of the basic terms, looking at the basic physics, then looking at some of the basic chemistry, now kind of branching out and seeing some different solutions, uh, solutions, and learning what we what we can gather from the information about these solutions based on uh, our our previous findings. So that was definitely the toughest of the four papers for me to read, and I kind of felt like I didn't know what I was talking about just now, but. Uh, in a weird physics-y way, that was kind of exciting for me, that I felt like I was learning some new ideas. I was seeing a new application. And uh, one place I could see this immediately just coming into the classes that I teach, I often like to do some kind of project in class where students are able to design their own experiment. And this could be a place where uh, the experiments seem kind of simple enough to complete that given a few periods that the students can work on this, that they can learn some of the, the basic elements that they need. Uh, they'll, they'll dig into some of the, the physical optics ideas, but then they're also gonna see an application of that. So I could see this as a, as a group project that students go into, but I could also see this as a, a sort of a, you know, optics is, is often at the end of the semester, and this could be like a final, a final piece uh, that the students do where they get to see a nice application. So as you may be gathering from me, I really love applications of physics principles, and this just sort of scratches that itch of an application. So there you go. Those are the four articles that uh, I took a look at in the physics teacher over the past couple of months. And as with the previous episode and as with in future ones, uh, these are just ones that I've decided to, to peck out. I, I thought they would be articles that I could talk about readily. I thought they talked about topics that I think are important and topics to me that are interesting. And uh, there is no way that the topics I can pick out will truly reflect the diversity of the different authors, of the different styles, of the different topics that are covered in the physics teacher and the other journals I'm gonna look at. So if there are articles that you would like to see featured, I would be happy to take a read through and to talk about those as well. Um, but until then, you know, I'll just do my best to pick out what I think are a nice variety, but I'm certainly not going to pick out the, uh, the best diversity of articles, but I'll, I'll keep doing the best I can. You can find a link to all four of these articles in the show notes, or you can go to the web link for this episode, physicsalive.com slash tptwinter22. That's physicsalive.com slash tptwinter22. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at physicsalive, and now on Slack as well. The invite link for Slack is in the show notes and the website as well. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. You just need to go to Shows on your app, select Physics Alive, scroll down past the recent episodes, and click on Tap to Rate. This will unlock a bonus seven-hour episode where I cover every single article in the last three months of The Physics Teacher. Or it will help more educators find the podcast. It's one of the two. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've enjoyed dipping into a variety of topics. Today's action step? Open up one of these four articles and take a read for yourself. If you don't have a subscription to the journal, I'm sure the authors would love to send you a copy. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive, where I'll be interviewing another podcast host, Jeff Young, from the EdSurge podcast, one of my favorites. Until then, may you ever strive to bring physics alive 
and be well.